Hi all, you're listening to At The Bean, a medical education podcast where we discuss high-yield oncology with a focus in radiation oncology. We are Trudy and Josh, and thank you for listening. All right, so welcome back everyone to another episode of At The Beam. We actually have a very special guest today. His name is Ramis Kuzi and he's a PGY2 at MD Anderson. We actually met at Astro and chatted a little bit and got to know Ramis and really loved his energy and wanted to have him on our podcast. So Ramis, just tell us a little bit about yourself and what brought you to this field. Thanks, Trudy. Thanks, Josh. I'm so excited to be here. Um, big fan of At The Beam. And um, as you said, we met Astro, um, one of the PGY2s at Anderson doing rad on right now, currently on a breast rotation. Um, but usually what I you know, like to do um, in my free time is try to work on stuff related to quality of life metrics, patient report outcomes, clinical trial design disparities, you know, um, trying to do my feet in all things uh, um, rad onc or rad onc aside. Um, in my free time, I like to play a little bit of pickleball, um, hammock and be outside, but at the same time, I listen to a lot of podcasts and add the beam is one of them, which is why I'm here. Great. Um, pickleball, that's that's the same thing as squash, right? Because I feel like I've heard the terms interchanged. Uh, yeah. She, she same, said same, those trigger words. She said yeah. same as squash. Is it? <laughs> I have no idea. I just it's, want to create controversy. I think it'll be fun. <laughs> it's, it's, well, it's a racquetball. So I think that that's similar in that sense. It's a fast paced, uh, you know, form where you're playing on a smaller court than tennis and you could play two versus two, which is pretty fun. You know, it's a mixture between tennis and, and uh, um, table tennis too. Super fun. How did you get into playing pickleball? Uh, actually, just, you know, start playing during internet year with a couple of friends and uh, it's easier on the joints and a little bit more fast paced. So <laughs> Why do they call it pickleball? Do you, do you know? Uh, actually, fun fact, I do know. My fiance told me about that story. Apparently, the guy who created pickleball of some sort had a, had a dog named Pickle or something like that. Oh, anyway, that's adorable. Fact check me. I don't know if that's actually <laughs> true. <laughs> oh, we're going to fact check you. Don't worry about that. I thought so of course we had to look up the origin of pickleball and apparently there are two different versions. The first version as Ramis had described is named after Pickles the dog. The second version is named after the pickle boat which is the last boat to finish a race and is usually made up of leftover oarsmen from other teams. This is related to pickleball because pickleball is made up of leftovers from other sports. I personally like the version of Pickles the dog better. Great. Um, how do you like living in Texas so far? Texas is great. You know, I've been uh, in Houston for a couple of years now, even before actually residency. So it's been treating me nice. It's a great city with amenities of a big city, but at the same time, you know, a little bit more calm and chill, very diverse, you know, get a lot of good food, authentic stuff, you know, but at the same time, um, has a little bit of the hustle and bustle of a big city. And, yeah. you know, at the end of the day, um, it's a uh, hot and humid as advertised <laughs> i don't believe that <laughs> but yeah. it's pretty nice are you from texas originally i'm not actually i'm from beirut originally um oh, wow. i uh, grew up in beirut lebanon that's where i went to um school medical school and then moved here to the united states afterwards um did a postdoc at anderson in uh, pancreatic cancer nice very cool well, it was great to chat with you and get to know you a little bit more. And I think that uh, Josh is going to discuss a case with you if you're ready to go for it. 
Yes. So um, today we're going to work through a rectal cancer case together. So uh, just some notes. Uh, colorectal cancer is the second leading cause of cancer death, just shy of 35,000 new cases diagnosed each year in the United States. So colorectal cancer is an umbrella term to encompass cancers of both the colon and the rectum. Um, unlike colon cancer, where there's no clear established role for RT in the definitive or adjuvant setting, most patients receive RT for locally advanced rectal cancer. Now, before jumping into our case, uh, we'd like to recognize that it's an exciting time in rectal cancer with the emergence of new shifting treatment paradigms. Um, in our show notes, we're going to link a few modern studies uh, investigating variations on fractionation, sequencing, and emission. Um, point being that there are multiple management options that will be appropriate, and today we're going to discuss just one of those. All right, so let's start out with our patient. So we have a 68-year-old cattle rancher and Wagyu beef aficionado who noticed blood streak stool uh, a few months ago. So Ramos, what are your next steps? Yeah, thank you. So first, I would like to obtain a detailed history and physical exam that actually focuses a little bit more on some of the uh, um, um, nuanced questions like volume of bleeding, presence of abdominal pain, rectal urgency, um, tenesmus, family history of colorectal cancer, and inquire about when um, was his last colonoscopy. That's great. Yeah, so he has uh, blood streak stools every few bowel movements, but he's otherwise asymptomatic. There's no family history of cancer that he's aware of. And he's never had a colonoscopy and asked what the uh, screening guidelines are. Yeah, uh, so the N NCCN recommends uh, any average risk person to start screening at the age of 45. Um, screening modalities vary, but most of the, those will basically take some form of colonoscopy or stool-based testing. If negative, colonoscopy should be repeated every 10 years and stool-based testing repeated annually. Now, when a patient is not considered average risk, uh, if there's, for example, any family history of uh, colorectal cancer, they need to start screening earlier at the age of 40 or 10 years before the earliest CRC case diagnosis in a first-degree relative. Now, patients who have a personal history of, for example, inflammatory bowel disease also need to start screening sooner and have their first colonoscopy eight years after onset of symptoms. Yeah, exactly. Um, there are other traits that would make a patient not um, average risk, and these details can be found on the NCCN guidelines. So back to our case, in addition to the history, you uh, astutely perform a digital rectal exam and refer the patient for a first available colonoscopy. On the scope, the uh, gastroenterologist visualizes a mass in the middle third of the rectum. She takes biopsies, and this confirms an adenocarcinoma. Any additional worker for this patient? Um, yeah, I'd also like to get a pelvic MRI and a CT chest have been pelvis IV contrast to uh, completely stage this patient. In terms of labs, I'd get a CBC, CMP with LFDs, and a CEA. All right, so you get your MRI back, and there's a 3CM mass in the middle third of the rectum. It's invading into the pericolorectal soft tissue. There's two suspicious perirectal lymph nodes. There's no distant METs, uh, nothing notable on the liver. The labs are normal. What is this patient's stage? Yeah, so in terms of stage, unlike other disease sites, destaging in rectal cancer is not based off size, but rather depth of invasion. So in the past, a lower EUS was the gold standard for T-staging, but now with our excellent imaging quality, with MRIs, many can utilize that to stage. Uh, an MRI is particularly helpful in determining distance of the tumor to mesorectal fascia and can show additional features such as extramural uh, venous invasion. Um, in terms of T-staging, T1 invades the submucosa, T2 the muscularis mucosa, T3 the pericolorectal soft tissue, T4 the visceral uh, peritoneum or adjacent organs. 
Now, in regards to end staging, it's based on numbers of involved lymph nodes. N1A is one node, N1B is two to three, N1C tumor deposits with no without nodes. N2A is four to six, N2B is greater or equal to seven. Now, this patient's tumor was invading into the uh, pericolorectal soft tissue and had two positive regional nodes, so staging would be a clinical T3N1M0. Uh, great job. So um, also recognize that if a patient presents with a malignant bowel perforation, that automatically labels the uh, patient as a T4. So Ramis, can you go over the regional lymph nodes in rectal cancer? Yeah. Um, actually, let's take a step back and um, take a look at the anatomy a little bit. Now, the rectum is the part of the gastrointestinal tract about 12 to 15 centimeter in length, spanning from the anorectal ring to the rectosigmoid junction. Um, we can broadly divide the rectum into three sections, the lower third, middle third, and upper third. This is important because lymphatic drainage and treatment management can differ based on where the index lesion is located. Um, tumors arising from the lower third of the rectum drain along the middle rectal artery to the internal iliac lymph nodes versus tumors in the upper third of the rectum drain along the superior rectal artery to the presacral and sigmoidal lymph nodes. Now, we mentioned this during the anal cancer episode that I wasn't there for, but don't forget that if the tumor extends into the anal canal, this puts that the, uh, the inguinal lymph nodes at risk. Um, if the patient does have positive non-regional inguinal lymph nodes, that is considered metastatic disease. All right, that's excellent. So um, we'll describe the nodal volumes later. So we have a clinical T3N1 locally advanced rectal cancer and a medically operable patient. So what's gonna be your treatment recommendation? Yeah, I would treat with a total neoadjuvant therapy starting with chemoradiation 45 grays to the pelvic lymph nodes with a sequential boost to 50.4 grays to the primary tumor and positive nodes with concurrent capecitabine. Now, after completion of um, chemoradiation, you'll receive consolidation chemotherapy, likely Falfox, followed by a low anterior resection or an LAR with a total mesorectal excision technique. This is where our little disclaimer fits in from the beginning. This paradigm is one of many ways to manage this patient, as we said, and changing it up with short course radiation therapy or induction chemotherapy can also be reasonable options for a variety of reasons. Yeah, exactly. So um, you're doing total neoadjuvant therapy with upfront CRT. How are you going to sim the patient? And do you mind describing the treatment volumes? Totally. Yeah, I would um, obtain a CT sim with IV contrast with a patient supine in a vac lock with a BB placed at the anal verge with a comfortably full bladder. To aid with target delineation, I would like to fuse the pelvis MRI. For the elective nodes, my superior border would be at the common iliac bifurcation, moving down to include the internal iliac nodes, presacral, obturators, and perirectal nodes, the entire mesorectum and rectum as well. Now, laterally, I would stop at the pelvic sidewall and anteriorly cover about one cm into the bladder to account for variations in bladder filling. My CTV would stop at the pelvic floor, making sure it covers at least two centimeters below the most inferior extent of the tumor. I would sequentially boost the mesorectum to 50.4 grays, and then I would use the MR fusion to delineate the primary tumor and make sure that it is receiving 50.4 as well. Yeah, that's great. Um, what PTV margin are you going to use? Yeah, um, for PTV margins, I would usually use a five millimeter. For my field arrangements, I would create a three field arrangement with two lats and a PA field. I would ensure I'm getting at least a five millimeter to one centimeter margin for my PTV to block edge. My posterior border would include the entire sacrum and anteriorly I would cover uh, to the back of the uh, synthesis for a T3 disease. 
Uh, nowadays, uh, IMRT is so commonly utilized, but it's important to recognize that 3D conformal radiation therapy remains standard for care for these patients, given that there were negative IMRT toxicity studies such as RTOG0822. So when you're reviewing this plan, you notice the small bowel V35 is 200 cc. Is that something you're okay with? I mean, ideally, we would want to make sure that this small bowel V35 is less than 150 cc. So I would ask if we could reduce the bowel dose. We can reconsider um, any imaging or our fields or blocks or perhaps even simulating in a prone position, which can sometimes help to push the bowel forward and away from our targets. Other OARs I'm interested in are the femoral heads, making sure that the V40 is less than 35%. The bladder V40 is less than 35% as well. Now, importantly, we want to make sure that 95% uh, of the PTV is receiving at least 95% of the prescribed dose. That's great. Yeah, your um, dosimetrist presents a second plan, which meets your coverage and organ at risk goals. You see the patient right before the start of neoadjuvant chemoradiation therapy, and they ask what the capsidabine dose is like. What do you tell them? Yeah, um, capecitabine, or as commonly known as Xylota, is um, 825 milligrams per meter squared BID only on days of radiation, and he should start on his first day of radiation too. And what are some of the side effects that you're going to counsel him on? That's a very important topic, and the um, side effects that I would counsel him on is fatigue, loose stools, nausea, vomiting, abdominal cramping, some urinary concerns, and this is in the acute setting. In terms of long-term effects, we would want to monitor for vaginal stenosis and encourage use of dilators in females. That's great. Yeah. So let's change it up and say instead you have a T3 tumor. So remember, you had a, a pericolorectal soft tissue invasion before, and the tumor is uh, invading into the prostate. What's the T-stage now, and does that change anything in terms of contours? Definitely. Um, as we spoke earlier, invasion into any nearby organs, vagina, bladder, or prostate would make a patient T4. And now you would need to include the external iliac lymph nodes in your elective nodal CTV. Okay. So you're seeing him on the last day of chemoradiation, and he asks, what's next? What do you say? So for TNT, he will go, now go on to complete around 16 weeks of adjuvant chemotherapy commonly Folfox or Kpox. Um, IV chemotherapy can be started about two weeks after completion of chemoradiation. After that, he will get restaged and then proceed to surgery about eight weeks later. In terms of surgical option, there are two types of surgeries. Um, one would be low anterior resection, and two would be uh, an abdominal perineal resection or APR. And APRs are generally performed for low rectal cancers, and it means that the patient is getting a permanent colostomy. If we can avoid an APR by downstaging with TNT before surgery, that would be obviously preferable. Now with total mesorectal excision, it's an important surgical technique where the surgeon sharply dissects outside the mesorectal fascia and remove the mesorectal fat and nodal bearing tissue on block in one intact specimen. This is performed in all surgeries nowadays. Yeah, great job. So um, one more curve ball since you're doing so well. Uh, what if this patient decides he doesn't want to deal with the post-op period and wants to go back to doing things he loves, such as riding his horse on his ranch as soon as possible? So he finished chemo-RT and um, chemotherapy already and asked if he can avoid surgery. So what do you tell him? Yeah, uh, in this case, uh, the watch-and-see approach is an emerging option for patients who, let's say, have completed TNT and desire non-operative management. If he does achieve a complete clinical response and restaging after TNT, I would say non-operable management is reasonable if he agreed to close surveillance with repeat exams, scopes, and uh, imaging like MRIs. 
If his disease recurs, salvage options are uh, available, like, as, like surgery would be the next step. However, we would want to emphasize that non-operable management is an active area of study in locally advanced rectal cancer and is not considered standard of care. That's fantastic. Thank you so much, Ramez. Um, we also want to thank Dr. Emma Holiday at MD Anderson for help with today's script. Uh, you can find the show notes on our website at atthebeam.com. Remember to be well and trust, but always verify. <laughs>